My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Andy Villanueva and Karen Bethel-John. It is no surprise to anyone who pays close attention to the voices of young women that high schools are, generally speaking, hotbeds of rape culture and slut-shaming. Rape culture is a term that captures a diverse collection of practices endemic to everyday life and the social world more broadly in North America that condone, facilitate, excuse, and tolerate sexual violence. Slut-shaming is the practice of demeaning and attacking women for their presumed or actual sexual activity or for aspects of their appearance or behavior that are treated as somehow linked to sexual activity. When they were grade 10 students, Villanueva, Bethel John, and another friend got together to form Project Slut to challenge rape culture and slut-shaming in their Toronto high school. They faced hostility, dismissal, and resistance. But not only did they persist in their efforts, they underwent an inspiring example of the kind of learning that comes from taking action. Learning about the systems they were facing, learning about strategy and tactics, learning based on acting, reflecting, and acting again. In their later years in high school, their organizing focused on efforts to get their school to abolish its dress code. The code restricted the clothing choices of young women much more than those of young men, and it created institutional space in which teachers publicly shamed young women about their appearance and thereby facilitated a broader environment of slut-shaming and rape culture. Moreover, the dress code not only facilitated the policing and shaming of women, but also was used to target gender non-conforming students, young black men, and other students as well. Villanueva, Bethel John, and Project Slut not only challenged the dress code in their school, they defeated it. Now both of them are attending post-secondary institutions, but they're committed to taking the campaign school board-wide in Toronto and are ramping up to begin that fight in the fall. We spoke by Skype to phone from Toronto. My name is Karen John. I am 19. I'm going to attend Humber College for Graphic Design, and I'm a co-founder of Project Slut. Hi, I'm Andy. I'm also a co-founder of Project Slut. I go to York University, and I'm studying Cinema and Human Rights and Equity Studies, and we changed our school's dress code back in our last year of high school. Project Slut is an organization that we started when we were 15 years old to advocate on how rape culture looked in our school and specifically how the dress code was oppressive, not only to female presenting students, but to actually a broad collection of folks. Through our activism, within two years, we were able to change our school's dress code. And now we're looking to change the dress code across the TDSB. A lot of people don't want to take the idea of rape culture seriously because they don't want to take accountability in how we create a culture that it's acceptable to rape others or to assault people or to trespass over people's bodies. 
rape culture is this idea that we shift blame on, you know, the victim of assault or things happen and then we shift them and we hold them accountable. That's the way that rape culture exists. For instance, in Toronto, when there was a numerous sexual assault that happening at York University, they put a statement if girls want to prevent themselves from being raped, they should not be dressing like sluts. So rape culture is also, it's like when Vijayan Gameshi thing came out and he sent out that post on Facebook about, you know, all these jilted girlfriends. Rape culture is when we believed him. I actually believed him because we want to believe that these women are making things up or that people didn't actually experience these things and that it's not normal. But the reality is it's very normal. It happens all the time. And we have this concept between what is legitimate rape and what's illegitimate rape. So rape culture is a norm to society that make it impossible for people to actually have real conversations about what that looks like. Slut shaming is when you look at someone and you degrade them and you subhuman them based on your perceptions on what they're doing sexually or what they're dressed like. For me, when I started high school was around the time where I started learning more about activism and feminism and racism and all these other things. Prior to that, I would say that I would do a lot of slut-shaming, not anything malicious, but it was just the culture girls are brought up in where we see other girls and we're like, oh, she's a slut for doing this and this and this. And eventually I realized that my actions were a little weird because I wasn't saying anything about males the same way I would say anything about females. And through that, I started learning more and more and more about feminism and sexism. And I did a lot of research and my own personal studies. Around the time we started projects, that was the same time that the Amanda Todd incident happened. And Amanda Todd was a Vancouver area teen who was driven to suicide by an online campaign of misogynistic bullying in 2012. And I was hearing a lot of really horrible things in my classes. There would be conversations about it and everybody would say really hurtful and mean things about her. And, and around that time, I decided that I wanted to change our school's climate to make it just a safer space, and I wanted to teach students about slut-shaming, and I wanted to teach students about sexual bullying and all these other things, and that's what I originally wanted to do. My journey of this work really started when I was 14, and I was in a high school, and everybody just sort of, like, declared me the school slut. People bullied me very severely, like there was a website about how much of a slut I was, and I remember knowing that I was a good girl, like I wasn't mean to anybody. And I remember nobody advocating. I remember these girls wanted to stab me basically in a school dressing room and nobody said anything because the consensus was that I was deserving of it because of the way I was dressed, because of the assumptions about me. And so I left that school and I heard about what happened to Amanda Todd and I realized I was lucky because when I left, people forgot about me. But this was a girl that left that school and nobody forgot about her and nobody let her forget and grow and heal from the people who did harm to her. On top of that, I was hearing that there was other girls in our school that were getting slut-shamed and living a very similar narrative to mine and that's when I realized that that's not what I wanted for other people. I don't think that's right and I started to bring it up and in our classroom we would try to have conversations around 
what happened and these incidents and cyberbullying and all that, but it didn't make sense to me to have those conversations when systemically we are policing women's bodies and we're perpetuating these ideas of what's decent and what's undecent and a lot of these you know, charged opinions about the female body. And so that's really how I began to, and needed to sort of mobilize. So it was around grade 10, I believe, that I wanted to educate about slut shaming and rape culture. And what we first started to do, it, it was really difficult in the beginning just because we had a lot of backlash and we weren't allowed to do a lot of things. So it started off with just me and Andrea, and then the next year, Andrea and Erin took a social justice course. So Erin hopped on board, and then from there, we all decided that we wanted to change our school's dress code before we did anything else, and that was actually our last year of high school that we ended up changing our school's dress code, and we unfortunately graduated after that, but that's pretty much how it started. We wanted to do the same thing, but we wanted to do it differently. I didn't think it was realistic to have conversations about slut-shaming and other things if within our school those attitudes existed. We had teachers go up to students and tell them, you're wearing lingerie, you should be ashamed. Bend over and I'll show you why it's inappropriate. Or my mother would be mad for letting you be in this classroom. So we had all these incidents repetitively happening in our school. And so we put up posters in our school educating teachers about what body shaming is and what slut shaming is, and it got getting taken down. And so then I realized that there's lots of charged opinions about dress codes and what constitutes as professionalism. So I wanted to get more feedback from teachers, so I created surveys, and I put them in the teachers' mailboxes, and I remember getting called down to the office, and the vice principal and the principal were there. And they were like, this is very much like guerrilla terrorism. You know, they kind of gave me a very Canadian, like, yes, you know, we believe what you're doing, but this isn't the way you do it and you can't do it. Even though it's almost like guerrilla terrorism. And my surveys were very normal. I worked on them with a teacher who tried to help me make them not skewed. And so those were the kind of restrictions that we kept getting when we first started. And eventually I looked at the charter and I looked at our dress code and I realized that it was detailing females, whereas it wasn't anatomically detailing males. And that's actually a violation of numerous TDSB policies and the charter. And so that's when we kind of realized that we were serious. And then we contacted gender-based violence. And gender-based violence is a unit at the board level within the Toronto District School Board, or TDSB. And they help us immensely navigate that relationship between students and staff. And then we had open dialogue with them, and it actually worked out in the end, where they got rid of our dress code. Tell me more about the backlash that you faced in the early years of your organizing. People thought we were wrong. They thought that it was just teenagers being stupid, caring about an issue that isn't worth caring, just finding a cause to fight. They were discrediting us a lot. They generally believed that they were protecting girls by telling them to cover up and that by doing that, they're protecting them from, you know, being looked at a certain way or not respected. And anytime I would bring up in the classroom, they would dismiss anything that we were saying. The principal was just like, if you keep doing this, I'm going to send you home. They took down our posters. I remember like taping them up and then them being thrown out and it was just like we spent weeks preparing them and collaging them and trying to make them more relevant to young people. And, yeah, they kept getting taken down. 
nobody really wanted to listen to us because they thought our class was stupid. But then once we realized that you can reverse the idea of professionalism towards them, because our school were very diverse, including myself and Karen, we come from lower income families, we're people of color. We have so many barriers in the professional world that nobody's talking about. They're just worried about whether we look like gangsters or like whores in school. And they don't give us the credit of knowing that we know how to navigate the world and that school is different. Teachers, a lot of them come to school in jeans and shirts and nobody tells them, you know, come to school dressed in suits, that's professional. Everybody's so hyped up about what we look like when in reality there's parts of us that will never be able to change that are going to make it difficult for us to access the professional world. And through that resistance, we actually saw how other people were policed in the dress code, like men of color were policed disproportionately. They were told to take the hat off to look like they're not intruders. But these are kids who walk the same hallways and enter your classrooms every single day. You should know they're not intruders. So it was just all these things. And there's a lot of backlash, but then by mid-grade 11, early grade 12, we started making teacher allies who really helped us make our cause less argumentative and more like we're coming from a place where we generally want the teacher-student relationships to be easier and make our schools more open to different bodies and different people and different races and that they don't have to simulate study professionalism because a lot of young people in our school have a hard time even graduating. So it's just like all these things just make it harder to exist. What's your response to people who take that position, who maintain that dress codes are all about protecting girls and women? What we kept trying to say was, in reality, it's not protecting girls at all. Because if they're in a school where they're getting publicly humiliated by their teachers for wearing, you know, a tank top on a hot day in a school with no AC, then how are they going to feel comfortable going to our school and our school staff when they're getting harassed in the hallways or when they, they feel like there's a problem or when they feel like they've been assaulted? There's no way a girl would feel comfortable going up to a teacher in our school when our school is creating rape culture and their teachers are already slut-shaming them. I know that most of the teachers, it was coming from a good place, but it wasn't creating a safe space for women in our school at all. We also got a lot of negative comments about our name, Project Slut. They thought it was useless to have a name like that. It was really just like confronting the word and confronting the way that it's used on people in our school, people in our age group, and people all over. Tell me more about what you were talking about earlier, about the barriers that are built into our notions of professionalism, particularly for low-income people and people of color. For instance, most people in my community, Hispanic community, a lot, we have issues graduating high school, right? So to even access these levels of professional spaces, that's already a challenge. Like the way we look, even the way our names sound. There's been studies about that. There's communities mobilizing the fact that it's hard to get a job if you're a person of color. It's hard to enter, continue into certain schools based on your income and the color of your skin. And it's even harder if you exist in a classroom setting and this idea of what it means to be a good kid being told that you're wrong for being there when all you're doing is wearing a hoodie or a hat or a tank top. I think that that's wrong. So, yeah, the fact that our school failed to realize and failed to have those honest conversations about the fact that a lot of us are going to be having a harder time to graduate high school or access these professional worlds, and then on top of that, 
tell us we shouldn't be in the classroom because we look a certain way. And that idea of professional just means you look like a criminal. You look dirty. You look like street. And I think that's disgusting. I think these are kids. You know, we're young people. We're not horrible people. We make mistakes, but we should be allowed to be in a classroom. Yeah, like, I'm black, and I was very close to the black community in our school. And the same year that we started getting more attention to that project, that they got rid of our school hat rule. And before they got rid of the hat rule, there was so much, so much, so much black male students getting in trouble for wearing hats to the point where they'd get called down to the office and get suspended. And like Andrea said, it makes no sense that you're excluding these kids from going to school, which they legally, you know, have to do. And they generally do want to get their education and and move on to better things. But how are we supposed to do that if you're telling us that we're not even allowed there just because we're wearing a hat on our head or something just so small? It makes us kind of feel like you're finding any reason for us not to succeed. That's almost how it feels sometimes. And it's just really discouraging. So I'm really happy that our school eventually did get rid of the hat rule because it was just causing way too much problems. And there was so much focus on kids wearing hats and hoodies instead of, like Andy said, way more important, bigger issues that need to be talked about. Not only that, but not necessarily in our school, but in schools across the CDSC, I know that kids were getting in trouble for even dyeing their hair too bright a color or... Black kids were getting in trouble for having, you know, too distracting hair. I know there's a lot of stories of kids in America getting suspended or getting in trouble for having, you know, dreads or having colorful braids or having an afro. You mentioned that one important early step was developing teacher allies. Tell me how you did that. We found classes that were made with the focus on having these conversations, like our woman's lit teacher. She obviously was aware of current feminist topics and current issues that affect women. We had the Each One Teach One group, which is a group that centers on the black young people in our school. And we had a social rights teacher who was open to have that conversation and validate the fact that we were coming from an activist perspective. So, yeah, it took time and they really immensely helped us. And tell me about the larger conversations that you were able to have as a result of building these relationships with sympathetic teachers. We did two things. We had a meeting with all the teachers. So introducing us to them, like the entire staff in a staff meeting, we got the honor of talking to all the teachers at our school and presenting what we're about and why we're doing the things we're doing. And overall, we got a good response. And even if the teachers didn't want to say anything against us, the fact that by that point we had the principal on our side made them kind of shut up. And we looked at the teachers specifically that were giving students a hard time, and it was the greatest moment ever. And then another moment was we held a workshop around sexting in one of the biggest lecture halls in our school. We invited a bunch of students to come, and we had a conversation around, like, what it means to sext as a young person and those things. So that's how we started having contacts to reach other students in our school. But we got feedback on our Instagram also from other students. Some of them are good. Some other students didn't get it also. You know, it's only hoes protect hoes type of mentality. We got some students, they were thankful for the work that we're doing because they felt like they couldn't say anything, especially girls who had been humiliated and abased of someone of their humanity. They came up to us and they thanked us because now they could defend themselves without having to put really themselves on such an unsafe platform. 
So we got thanks, and we also got others who thought, you know, girls should be dressing properly, and kids should really not be dressing like criminals, and those sort of attitudes. Definitely, the girls in our school were very thankful, like Andrea said. A lot of them came up to me with their own personal stories of how the school dress code affected them. The males in our school, some of them didn't really understand what we were trying to do, but eventually they did understand, and a lot of them did jump on board with us. So I feel like the majority of the students in our school were extremely supportive. Same with staff, eventually. How did it reach the point of the actual change in policy and the abolishing of the dress code? I drafted a proposal, and this proposal was 15 pages long, and I cut it down to like one page, sort of like our different arguments as to why dress codes are invasive, how they are problematic, and how they affect students negatively. And one of those arguments was we actually looked at a human rights policy that says that no group of people specifically can be subjugated under a rule or a policy. And we looked at our dress code, and our dress code, under the heading, we respect ourselves by, we do not show bosoms and other, like, cis female body parts. And so then that was a violation of the charter. And so to make the school more accountable, on top of these valid arguments about slut-shaming rape culture and how it harms students in different scenarios, we help our school to larger contacts. That, that also includes TDSC contacts that it was indirectly inflicting, and that's actually why we're still trying to mobilize, trying to get rid of the dress code across the TSB, not just at our school, because right now there is no universal dress code because the TDSB promotes that every school in their own culture creates their own dress code. And that's important because every school should have their own sovereignty. But with that comes a lot of horrible situations where students have to follow really harmful dress codes and a lot of problematic things exist. So that's sort of how we did it. We made a proposal we found ways to tie in our school dress code and hold it accountable on larger legal contacts. And tell me more about that current phase of the campaign that's focused on the school board as a whole. Basically, everything got launched in our BuzzFeed article. BuzzFeed decided to write an article about it. And in the article, we launched a YouTube video. It's public on YouTube that pretty much introduces us and who we are and what we did. And we also created a petition on change.org to get signatures to change or eliminate school dress codes all across the TBSB. And hopefully with the petition and the video and all the attention we've been getting, that we can have this conversation with the TBSB about their school dress codes or at least start something bigger. Because we did a really good job in our own high school and now we want to move forward and spread to other schools. And we're planning on doing workshops next year. I think one of the challenges we have with that, though, is we graduated now. We're no longer in high school. And it makes sense to have these sort of talks actually be facilitated by other high school students. So we've been trying to connect with other young people within high schools so we can collaborate with them and use the resources that we have available so more people can benefit because there are issues that we're failing to really bring to the light. The reason why we urgently tried to do something again was because the Crop Top Day movement. And Crop Top Day was an initiative this past spring organized by other students in the greater Toronto area where numerous students protested dress codes by deliberately defying them. The Crop Top Day movement, although it was really great, really only focused on thin white bodies and how dress codes affect 
and it's still very valid, but we felt like there were so many other people who could benefit from talking about dress codes, especially if right now the media will give us, you know, a minute of their day to explore these issues. And I think it's crucial to include as many people as possible within these type of things because we're in 2015 and we really have to start changing our attitudes around race, gender, and sex. And what other additional kinds of changes do you think would be useful in high schools to challenge rape culture? I think when we talk about rape culture and assault and our school climate, it just needs to be a completely open conversation. And I know it's difficult to get these conversations started because, you know, these courses are math and they're geography and they're gym and they're this and this. And it's not always easy to talk and talk about these issues if you're not in a social justice class or yada, yada, yada. But there are mandatory things like health class. And of course, they just changed the sex ed, which is amazing. So I feel like we do need to have more, and we are now because, you know, the sex ed changed. We need to be very inclusive when we have these conversations. And yeah. On top of like giving massive respect and shout outs to Tess and Leah. And those are two other Toronto area high school students who mobilized successfully around getting robust consideration of consent in the new Ontario sex ed curriculum. For mobilizing the sex ed and consent changes within the curriculum, like massive respect. They're brilliant girls. On top of that, we need to be able to have and really teach teachers to have those conversations and be accountable to those policy changes to create spaces where students can come forward with their stories and come forward with their experiences. Because if we can't talk about the elephant in the room, we can't talk about how people are harassed in the classroom, how they feel when the teacher says a certain thing about their outfit, what it feels like to hear, you know, in the hallways somebody talk about you in a certain way. And if there's no accountability to the fact that this is happening, and we can't make it relevant into how it's happening in our schools, in our own lives, then there's no point. So I think that's the biggest thing is to really find ways to do those things, to create spaces for people to come forward with their stories. For the longest time, we've been doing this for a couple of years, and we've been really stuck on our high school. So I'm just excited that we're branching out to the city and to the TDSD and even the other cities. And I'm just excited that things are expanding and things are going out of just our Central Tech High School. The petition is up, but we're strategizing on how to build momentum for September. So we've been doing lots of planning. I'm actually working right now on a guidebook for other students across the province on how to change your school's dress code. Yeah, I'm really excited. I'm confident that these conversations are not going to go away. You have been listening to my interview with Andy Villanueva and Karen Bethel-John of Project SLUT about their organizing against rape culture, slut shaming, and dress codes in Toronto high schools. To learn more about their work, search for Project SLUT on Facebook and Twitter. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thanks.